Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. In 1996, police in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, teamed up with local broadcasters to develop a new but simple system of safety that paired public leadership with everyday civic responsibility. America's Missing, Broadcast Emergency Response, or Amber Alert, was developed in response to the murder of nine-year-old Amber Hagerman, who was abducted while riding her bike and killed in Arlington, Texas. Amber's legacy has been profound. The response went beyond Texas. It spread across the nation. More than 800 children have been saved from abduction as a result of the word spreading, across our big screens as they did in the 90s and today on our small screen devices. These clarion calls are simultaneously a way for government to engage the public to do good and a way for the public to engage with local government authorities to help them do their jobs more efficiently. A kind of social contract of reciprocal partnership between public, private and citizen that engenders trust. A promise that when we engage, when we all do our part, something positive can happen. Something as monumental as reuniting a child with their family. Tragic events, big and small, have the power to influence how and why we act next. And it's in these moments of crisis that a person and a country comes to find their character. Ultimately, when we think about government, it really is the part of a social contract, right? We trust as the governed that government is going to do right by us and and do what's best for the collective good. And then government also trusts that part of that contract is that whatever comes out of the halls of government, so to speak, are edicts and policies that the people will ultimately trust. If one part or another part of the equation is fraught or afraid in some way, then that social contract just isn't going to work very well. Jorge Fanhul is the North American Director for Government Legitimacy at the Center for Public Impact, a BCG foundation. That means that he spends a lot of time trying to figure out what can be done to increase Americans' trust in government. It's still all about your lived experience, right? If your lived experience with government has been that you can get things done very easily without really having to do much effort, then you probably fall into that high trust spectrum. But most Americans aren't necessarily in that high trust spectrum and aren't necessarily in that low trust spectrum. Most Americans really fall into that medium trust. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, they can very, very easily feel distrust, disappointment. And what you have now more and more is people falling into that low trust space because their lived experience has been that the trust that they've put into the parties, the trust that they've put into bipartisanship, ultimately delivering results for them, hasn't happened. So now you're seeing that what was generally that low trust group is getting higher and higher and higher. And that's a pretty scary thing. 
When we talk about trust here, we're talking about both competence, the idea that government will do a good job, and intentions, the idea that government is ethical and fair. Both of these ideas are important in a democracy, a system that, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, promises government of the people, by the people, and for the people. In a democracy, trust isn't merely a nice-to-have, it's the lifeblood of the system itself. We've got a pandemic. We've got climate change. We've got inflation. We've got real, real crises happening today that require policies that are human in nature, that really take into account people, and that have the trust of the people they're meant to affect. Because ultimately, if that trust isn't there, again, there's no buy-in. That's really important because there's a lot of that distrust, that unfortunate feeling that, oh man, government is failing me, is really from a lack of, I don't, I don't trust that this is actually good for me. I have not bought into this idea. I have not bought into this stimulus package, right? I have not bought into this vaccine, right? I have not bought into whatever idea it is you're giving me because it's, it's just not there. Today, it's clear that many Americans are not bought in. After decades of decline, the percentage of people who trust the federal government to do the right thing stands near all-time lows, about 24%, according to the Pew Research Center. And the consequences of distrust in government can be dire. Less trust correlates to more crime, less work, more death, more reasons why we have to address this crisis of legitimacy in government right now. And explain to me, Jorge, just the difference between distrust and disappointment, right? Like you, a lot, a lot of the time we'll see approval polls and we'll say, oh, you know, the public is disapproving of what a politician is doing or disapproving of a policy proposal. What's the difference in your mind between disapproval in government and distrust in government? Well, the fact is um, disapproval and distrust probably uh, very much come from the same place, right? The idea that Ultimately, you're, you're disappointed or feel that you have lost trust in a public official comes from expectation setting, comes from a lack of those expectations being fulfilled, but more importantly, from a lack of conciliation, right? Conciliation made by that public official. Um, and, and we really look at this at the Center for Public Impact very intensely and why we look at when we say, you know, reimagining government so that it works for everyone um, by, first of all, you know, making the admission that government hasn't worked for everyone and really approaching that relationship with a much more conciliatory, apologetic and humble stance. While the reasons for distrust may be varied, they basically boil down to a citizen asking simply, is the government keeping its promise to me or is it not? And these days, more Americans will say that they're experiencing the sting of a broken promise. Some would have us believe that government is irredeemable, that cynicism and distrust are virtues, that we're better off placing our faith in strongmen than democratic institutions. But Jorge doesn't subscribe to that ideology. He believes that government is worth fixing, and it's not too late to mend what's broken. But that requires the federal government to fundamentally change how it operates. So what does that look like? For Jorge, it starts local. The people that ultimately um, live in your community, all your city council members, all your aldermen. These are people that are experiencing what you are experiencing. And ultimately what that what that means is you can take on 
difficult challenges together better, right? You can take on the obstacles of a pandemic. You can take on the obstacles that come from uh, a climate crisis, right? You can take on a hurricane. You can take on flooding because there is a belief then that the people that are making the decisions for you are, are really invested in your locality or really invested in your local community, your local life, because oftentimes they're a part of it too. Jorge works with local governments across the country. And what he's seeing during the pandemic is that some of those governments are taking this moment as an opportunity to change how they relate to the communities they serve. It's important to understand that there is no right, there is no left way of of doing good work for people, right? There's really only a human way. Now, you might invariably have different ideas on how to get there, but ultimately, it requires government taking the stance of, oh, okay, maybe we need to go from just informing communities of what we're doing and moving up the ladder towards ownership and actually allowing community to own some of these policies, these principles, and these protocols that are coming out of government. When I tell you that that is a huge um, jump, uh, especially from being a, a former public servant myself, that jump is huge to go from simply informing government of, hey, we're going to do this to, hey, let's figure out how to do this together. Huge jump. That requires somewhere in the middle, there is something that clicks there, and that click has to be, oh, let's share power. Let's share power. I'm Caroline Modaresi-Tarani, and you're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we're talking about how COVID-19 has created a moment for us to think critically about the systems that we've built and decide if they're serving us, all of us, well. And one of those systems is the government itself the glue that binds everything else in our society together. Right now, those bonds are slipping. The evidence is all around us. Low voter participation, high levels of social unrest, and millions of Americans resistant to getting a government-recommended COVID-19 vaccine. But in moments of crisis, governments have an opportunity to turn things around. In fact, in our country, it's often tragedy, a hurricane, a kidnapping, an attack on our liberties that leads to some of our most important innovations. New ways of thinking, a deepening of that social contract that can save lives and mend the crucial relationship between the people and public servants. It was like that for Jorge Fanhul, a single brush with tragedy that shook him profoundly. It was right before Thanksgiving. Uh, There was a pregnant mother who... Um, was targeted by a uh, local criminal who uh, she had witnessed involved in some criminal activity. He was aware that she was a witness. And uh, after she dropped her kids off um, at school, uh, she was coming back home and she was shot to death in her hallway. And uh, she, she was killed. She was killed. She was killed. A pregnant mother um, was killed in cold blood uh, while she was turning the key. Her youngest child was sleeping inside. 
At the time, Jorge was working in Corona, Queens, as chief of staff to a city council member. This tragedy took place in a community that he'd grown up a part of, and seeing the fallout was devastating. So what I saw is people fell either into two camps, and both um, I found were really dangerous at the time. One is the, ah, this always happens. That's okay. Next, right? Tomorrow's another day. And that level of desensitization is, is very scary, right? Because it means that you now don't expect any better from government, right? So that, that's one. And then the other group of folks fall into the, I'm just angry now, right? So it's like there's apathy and desensitizing yourself or there's just extreme anger. We saw both uh, within a matter of hours that morning. With his boss already out of town for the Thanksgiving holiday, Jorge realised that it was up to him to be the bridge between government and a community desperately hurting. My head spun. I had to take a moment and figure something out pretty quickly in real time, and that's I'm now a figurehead for the local city council office. I have to step up and be a leader, but also understand that the most important voices in in this space right now are not my own. It wasn't my voice, it wasn't the voice of my staff, it was the voice of the survivors and it was the voice of the community. To help this community in a time of crisis, Jorge knew that he needed their trust. And to earn that, he knew he needed to show up differently. Could he do it? It wouldn't be the first time that government officials have reimagined the way that they operate in the aftermath of a crisis. I am originally from South Louisiana, was born in Morgan City, Louisiana. That's Khalil Shahid. He's the Managing Director for Equity and Environmental Strategies at the National Resources Defense Council in Washington, D.C. But uh, New Orleans to me is home. He's also a New Orleanian through and through. Oh, man. Um, The spirit there, the depth of culture there, and just the historical and spiritual depth. You just feel it. It's in the air. It's in the humidity. It's in the mist that rises off of the street after it rains in the summer because the concrete is so hot. It's just everywhere. The food, the Black Indian tribes, the social aid and pleasure clubs, the neighborhoods, the artists, the poets. There's just such a depth of culture and appreciation um, for who they are, for who we are, uh, you know, as a people, as a community. That depth of feeling and connection made it especially devastating when Hurricane Katrina hit the city on August 23rd, 2005. I remember, you know, I I was in graduate school when uh, Katrina hit and and I told this story to my cohort. You know, I was like, yeah, you know, we always had this story. It was kind of like a boogeyman story about the perfect hurricane is someday going to hit and it's going to flood the city. The way that story was always told to me, there was no evacuation. You know, we didn't go anywhere. We just died with the city. And that was just expected because we belong to it. It doesn't belong to us. Hurricane Katrina was that boogeyman story come to life. More than 80% of New Orleans wound up underwater when the levees broke and flooded large swathes of the city's metropolitan areas. The emergency cleanup was fraught, but once the waters receded, residents could finally start to think about rebuilding. But city government officials wanted to do more than just rebuild. They wanted to remake New Orleans in a new image. 
an image that the people hadn't signed off on, an image that infamously came to be known as the Green Dot Map. Khalil, what is the Green Dot Map? What was that? The Green Dot Map was like the first sort of post-Katrina, you know, recovery planning document that was done um, by the Urban Land Institute. What they proposed to do was to take some of the lowest lying areas that received, you know, some of the deepest amount of flooding and rather than redevelop them as residential spaces, as living spaces, as neighborhoods, uh, to turn them into green space, to park space so that they can serve as water catchment areas. Um, but what they didn't do was first count on Again, the fact that people had already begun to self-organize and to rebuild, uh, you know, their communities by this point, you know, people had really spent time, money, resources, blood, sweat, and tears to build these communities, to establish these places. You know, the message from local government was that we are not here for you. For the poorest and most vulnerable in New Orleans, the Green Dot Plan was outrageous, but it wasn't all that surprising. They were used to living in a city where some of the most consequential decisions were made without them, behind closed doors. When I was a young activist coming up, we would go to school board meetings, even though I wasn't like really involved in education policy or education advocacy. But you would go to the school board meetings and you would just count the people who would get drug out by security because they were screaming at the school board, you know, trying to, to hold them accountable to the state of the public school system. Wait, that's quite the picture. People literally being dragged out because they were so fired up. Yeah, every school board meeting, it, it was a common thing. No one was dragged out of the meeting where the green dot map was revealed, at least none that Khalil recalled. But there was enough outrage that the city was forced to shift gears and open the doors of the planning process to everyone in New Orleans. Neighborhoods, you know, black and white, uh, you know, Asian, you know, revolted against the, the green dot plan. So they said, OK, you know, we're going to do this citywide recovery planning process. You know, every neighborhood's going to kind of do its own thing. As an organizer with the Committee for a Better New Orleans, it was Khalil's job to help get neighborhoods organized so that they could participate in this new process. Many Black neighborhoods in New Orleans did not have neighborhood associations. We didn't organize necessarily um, in that way. You know, we organized through different types of social organizations, um, you know, in our communities and social aid and pleasure clubs just real like deep uh, familial organizations. We had to build um, that neighborhood infrastructure in a lot of Black neighborhoods in the city where it didn't exist. Otherwise, they were going to be made invisible by the recovery planning process. When we talk about, particularly for racial justice advocates, the activist community in New Orleans, they were used to thinking about justice and thinking about activism as a social concept and not as a geographic one. And so, you know, we actually had debates with some of the other activists after Katrina about the neighborhood planning process. And, and some of them saw that as dividing the Black community by participating in this neighborhood-based system. And they balked at the idea of organizing the community by neighborhoods. Um, I didn't see it as that. Um, you know, again, I follow people like Ella Baker, who always said, you know, strong people don't need strong leaders. Um, and if you invest in community, if you build in their capacity to lead themselves, to participate in governance, then, you know, they don't need you to be a strong leader to kind of guide them through this stuff. 
Khalil, why were you so fired up about this? I'm really curious. There are a lot of people who are living in New Orleans. It's not like you're the only person to realize that, wait a second, there are a lot of like very atomized communities here. We don't really talk to one another. Um, I'm sure lots of people kind of realize that existed. But why were you so fired up to actually start talking to people and, and actually kind of creating this dialogue between different kinds of communities within within New Orleans? We would always say um, reactionaries fight for their interest and call it justice while revolutionaries, you know, fight for justice and they make that their interest. And so, you know, that's the way that we wanted to present it. And so for us, justice was something that was very objective. Um, you know, it wasn't a subjective thing that it was just about me or about my own interest. So I was really trying to push, you know, what's going to be best for the community as a whole. And I was thinking, okay, how can we begin to bring all of these folks together and really rethink governance, really rethink accountability and, and really rethink our interaction both with each other but also with these systems that really control us. In the end, Khalil and other organizers were able to get dozens of neighborhood associations up and running and they contributed in a significant way to the city's recovery plan. But Khalil says that the process fell short of its potential. You know, there's definitely a need for financing to help build and train the capacity of the people who are participating in it because you want them to be able to participate effectively in, in this process. And, and yes, it's financing, but it's also more than financing. It's also time. If we aren't willing to invest in the time, for example, needed to do it, um, and, and often what happened in a lot of these planning processes, and you see this really in like local planning really across the country, that it's not very uh, discursive planning. You know, it, It's more of come to the planning meeting, you say what you want or what you like about this map, um, and then you go home. And there's not a lot of discussion. You know, there's not a lot of opportunity for people to really get to know each other. There's not a lot of opportunity for people to really consider what are the realm of possibility for their community and thinking towards the future. It might have been an imperfect experiment, but one thing really sticks with Khalil. Trust can be created when regular people are given the power to engage with the mechanisms of governance. What he saw in New Orleans post-Katrina showed him what could be possible. Many cities have been adopting some degree of participatory budgeting um, processes to manage certain aspects of the public budget, which are, again, you know, these kind of very deliberative discussion spaces to talk about how we're going to allocate the city budget. Um, and so I think that, that those things are happening and they can happen at the local level. And then that has to generate that type of both trust, expectation, and this type of culture of engagement has to be developed locally. And then that needs to then you know permeate and scale up to how the state and the federal level begin to uh, interact um, and engage with people. I don't think it can be something that can be directed from the top down. Scaling what communities have accomplished locally and bringing those ideas to a federal level sounds ideal, but is it realistic? I started my career at the World Bank, where I was a social development specialist working in about 20 plus countries, thinking about these large infrastructure projects. How do we ensure that women, children, marginalized groups or vulnerable groups are either a part of that process or they're not negatively impacted by the process? That's Kevul Hanna, a program director for inclusive economies at the Boston Consulting Group's Center for Public Impact, or CPI. 
she's been pushing for a more participatory style of governance at both the federal and local level for years. So my worldview is really impacted by being on the ground with people, understanding, um, again, listening intently and understanding their perspectives, and then being able to translate that for government leaders, ministers of finances, prime ministers, business leaders as well. When you're talking about a new vision of government, you know, CPI is talking about a new vision of government founded on a new set of beliefs and values and principles. What is that vision? Trust has to be at the core of that vision. But we really believe in the potential of government to bring about better outcomes for people. Our vision at CPI is one in which it works for all people by adapting to address the complex challenges we face, emphasizing the value of human relationships, and optimizing learning rather than control. We want a whole space to collect and help people collectively make sense of these complex challenges I just talked about, and then drive towards meaningful change through experimentation. So that's pretty revolutionary in many ways and hopefully transformative, but we feel like this is the, the emerging vision of government. Today, the core of Caval's work is changing how we craft policy from our current top-down approach to a better bottom-up model. The pandemic, she says, has revealed just how much work there is to do to bring more people into the democratic process. The pandemic, I think, highlighted very much the established forms of structural exclusion and our fractured social contract. And what that meant was very clearly, civic, we found out that civic participation and self-advocacy, it's extremely tough to do when you're busy putting out fires in your own household. If you're an essential worker working three jobs during the pandemic, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to participate um, civically. What that means is your voice is not being heard when we're thinking about who's getting tested, who's getting vaccinated, um, who's been able to access PPPs, who's understanding what's going on in the world. And so those low trust levels and the lack of incentives to engage and to take that risk is really challenging, coupled with the systemic barriers to civic participation. So do I think people are ready to take that leap? I think, yeah, I think we have a new cadre of leaders, social, political, and economic leaders, who are going to push that, push us and push the model in a completely different way. At the same time, I'm not completely utopian. You know, when you think about some of the systemic challenges to civic participation, um, just, just recently with, with voting, that's very, very real in many ways. When you think about other barriers for people being involved and engaging in the society, that's, again, that's a real thing. Caval says it's at precisely this moment, when trust in government is at its lowest, that public officials have perhaps the greatest opportunity to turn things around. And Caval says that she's seeing it happen across the country, in places like San Jose, California, Aurora, Illinois, and Savannah, Georgia, governments are finding new ways to involve communities in designing solutions to tough problems like food insecurity, housing, and education. For federal government leaders who want to mirror their success, there are three things Caval says they should look to emulate. And the first is there has to be, and I think this is the same thing for business, a willingness and a commitment to equity, inclusion, and access. At the most basic level, there has to be that interest there. I think the second thing is you have to have a recognition that the systems are in place are going to be a little bit difficult to uh, change right away, but there are things that you can do that are within your remit, right? If you have a budget, really using participatory strategies like involving people in the budget, not just saying we're having a town hall meeting at eight o'clock, but making it um, available on Zoom, 
going to community spaces, doing pop-ups. I think the third thing is having a collective understanding that there are compounding factors to where people are at, right? It's not just because they're black or they're white or their race or their gender or their, you know, their age or whatever it is. There are these compounding factors that we have to take a step back and recognize and understand because history is really important in many ways. And again, it goes back to like not every American or whoever lives in the United States experience is not uniform. And so when people engage with governments, there is a possibility that we can increase trust in an exponential way. But when we think about, you know, the proximity to government are these, I was talking about intersectionality. These are pretty big challenges. And I think there's an opportunity for government to really rise up to the challenge um, and respond in an equitable way. Kaval says that this fresh vision of government can make a difference at the federal level, but there's ultimately no one-size-fits-all solution. Every department, every agency and every office needs to work alongside the communities they serve to come up with the specifics. When you think about citizens in, in, in particular and how they can actually build trust and build those relationships, you have to think about intentionality, intentionally engaging residents and community members, being upfront and honest about those mistakes or those wins as well that, you know, governments of the past have done. Being willing to listen to different perspectives of your residents. And again, I think it comes to centering people and their experiences in any solutions that you come up with. For public servants who want the public to feel that their intentions are good, centering the people they serve is essential. But it's also crucial in that second part of trust, effectiveness and execution. Just ask Rajiv Mathur, Today, he is a partner at Boston Consulting Group focusing on the public sector. But before, he worked in both the Obama and Trump administrations, serving at both the IRS and Social Security Administration, or SSA, respectively. These are large, public-facing agencies that touch every American household. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, probably every single person in some way at SSA, we used to say we touch you all through your, your life from birth to death. It's these touch points, these small but consistent dealings with the government, that Rajiv says have come to define how he thinks of trust. Certainly, the average taxpayer beneficiary doesn't know the government, doesn't really have a need to interact with them. And when they do interact with them, uh, it's tough to get a hold of them. You have to stand in line. You have to wait on the phone for two hours. Uh, You may have to... You know, you may have taken a day off of work to get into the field office or go into a taxpayer assistance center. It's a big deal. That's a painful experience. And so when that is the hurdle you have to go through just to interact with the government, of course, it's going to be a very difficult and non-positive experience. So how does every touch with the interaction with, with the government, just like any other business, how does every touch with the government, how can it be a less painful, more positive experience? Essentially, local and federal public servants are trying to do the same thing, make government more inclusive by meeting people where they're at. At the federal level, Rajiv says that this can be accomplished by making people's experiences of government fast, transparent and accessible, qualities they've gotten used to in a hyper-connected world. My background, my bias is towards using technology and digital to serve better and exceed somebody's expectation when they're interacting with the government. I do think each of those touches will be an opportunity. And I'll share an example with you about how you may think about service or how we may think about service. When you order something from an Amazon or any other online retailer, 
you hit the click button to buy and you immediately get a response. We've received your order, an acknowledgement. They're listening. Effectively, they've said to you, we acknowledge, we've listened to you, we're working on it. And then maybe 20 minutes later, you might get a thing, something that says, oh, we're preparing your order. So you can see your order being processed and then eventually shipped. And you know you get all the updates from when it's shipped and when it's arrived in a picture on your doorstop. If I have repeated interactions with you and they're positive interactions, over time, I start trusting you more and more with more things about me. And, and, and that can certainly apply to your government agencies, whether they're state, or, you know, local, or federal. Every time I touch a government service, I'd like it to be a positive experience. In some cases, that means you may need to go to a, uh, to a physical office, but at least that should be painless. Let's make an appointment, make it convenient for you, make sure the hours are okay, make sure you can do as, enough prep work prior to getting there so when you get there, it's just the transaction that needs to happen. Make sure the right paperwork is available. I mean, these are all things that can help improve the overall touch with the government. It doesn't have to be, I'm not suggesting everything is online and digital. What I am suggesting is it needs to be frictionless and painless. One way to do that is with technology. You got to find a way to kind of use the best solution and best approach to be able to serve the government. It may seem naive to think that the ability to book a DMV appointment online or track your tax return on an app could make many more Americans trust our government and democracy, especially in today's toxic political climate. But Rajiv argues that altering the impression of the government in a positive way on a personal level is a powerful and paramount step in the direction of gaining and keeping trust. And in so many ways, this impression is at the core of the social contract between a government and its people. I used to liken the notion of equity to making sure that you can serve the public. But it's not just about that, because the notion of equity you know, gets translated into, is it usable for somebody? Can they understand it? Can they access it? Do they have the physical device to be able to access something? The digital equity part doesn't just mean do they have the physical access, but are we providing the right kind of service for that customer? Uh, are we using the right language for the person? Are we making sure that we're catching them at the right point when they need to transact? In my view, it's a much more important and broader approach to serving the public, to serving 100% of the public. And that's the opportunity that we certainly face. So lots of ways to get there. And I think we need to embrace that for sure. Meeting people where they're at isn't simply a metaphor for communicating or for the future of digital innovation. It's the difference between exclusion and equity, between destroying a neighborhood and saving it, between tragedy and reunion. Today, the Amber Alert program is in all 50 states and the rules of regulation are decided on by local coordination, just the way it started. It's that coordinated effort, that mass participation, coupled with powerful execution that has rescued hundreds and hundreds of children. What started as a single tragedy became a moment for civic engagement and public leadership, an opportunity to meet people where they are and move forward together. A similar turn of events played out for Jorge Fanhul. At a time when trust in the local government could have slipped even further, Jorge made it his mission to help strengthen his bond with the community that he served. This tragedy happened in your community. 
people were looking to the government for answers or they were looking to the government and pointing fingers and saying, where were you? How could you let this happen? What for you was the takeaway from that experience? The takeaway was that when you're in government, there is never going to be a substitute for truth, authenticity, and vulnerability in what you do. Often in government, we come in with the position that we're either experts at everything, we're prepared for every situation, right? Because we think that that's what the folks that elected us put us in power, or again, you know, that we, we look to stand up this social contract that we have with them. We think that's what they expect. When I'm learning from the, the municipalities that I work with um, now at CPI is that that stance of vulnerability, not just approaching things as business as usual, makes a big difference, makes a big difference. Government can always be better, but it can never be without fault. Even the constitution says so. Read the fine print. It only promises a more perfect union. At the end of the day, public servants who embrace that reality, that sense of imperfection, are actually better at their jobs. At least that's something that Jorge learned in New York. When Jorge arrived at the scene of that crime in Queens, the shooter was still at large. Because of that, and his position in government, Jorge was offered a bulletproof vest. I never forget this. I was offered by one of the officers if I wanted a bulletproof vest uh, just because this individual may, may still be running around and, and we don't know what their mental state is. Like, they're still investigating in that hallway, investigating the bill, and also looking for this individual, right? So I said, no, no, uh, I, I don't want the vest. I, that's the, that is, like, why, why do I want to afford myself that level of protection? That doesn't instill trust. And I, I think in a case like this, the more you root yourself in the moment, the more you really feel what the community is feeling, feel what this family is feeling, I was scared. I was scared. And they were scared too. I realized that if I'm not experiencing this too, if I'm not feeling like I have some skin in the game here, that empathy um, that's so key right, in, in doing this work and so key in, in creating trust isn't going to be real. It's not going to be it's not going to be genuine, it's not going to be authentic. So you have to put yourself in that space. Not knowing an answer is okay if you're working towards finding a solution and getting an answer, right? In a real empathetic and power-sharing dynamic. And that's probably my biggest takeaway from that experience and what and why I am so animated about this, because I saw this work and the opportunity to actually get to focus on what works is so incredibly powerful. Was there a ripple effect, Jorge, because your mindset shifted? Did you notice a ripple effect in the community? I did. I did. The ripple effect in the community was really in that they saw our office as an ally. Now, here's the thing. Once I left, that trust needed to be reestablished. That trust was now specific to me, to our office, to the council member's office. Once we were gone, 
you now need to continue to rebuild trust and new people have to come in. So I learned that this is an ongoing struggle. And yes, while I was able to change the dynamic of how that community then worked with me so that I could then go back and have conversations about gun violence at the local library, right? We were able to then get money to fix that local library, renovate it because it hadn't been done in decades, right? Like this, this was, this allowed us to have those conversations. But I'm also keenly aware that once we left, once she was no longer in office, once I was no longer the chief of staff, community again goes back to, okay, can we trust who's coming in now, right? And now you're not coming in with the benefit of those experiences. So it's important to have that baseline understanding of how to at least come in and approach community, right? How to come in with humility, how to come in with the curiosity, how to come in with the understanding that you're accountable, right? For the work that that you do. And if you do that at the start, I think that hopefully it may it doesn't have to take this egregious painful challenging story to happen in a community to get to that point where you're coming in as a government official as a public official and you've already have some of that trust built in because you started doing it from day one You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. In our next episode, we'll look at America's digital divide, how it's impacting our kids' education, and how we can close it once and for all.